Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Simply Amazing. Tim Ryder from the Apple. Hope everyone who celebrated had a very, very nice Christmas. I know uh, ours was low-key, but uh, very much a, a nice day, a nice weekend. Uh, I hope everyone's getting through this uh, Omicron thing. All right. This is uh, this is wild. It's spreading like uh, like crazy and just hope everyone's staying safe and, uh, you know, all that good stuff. But, uh, you know, on the baseball front, we don't got to whole lot to talk about. <laughs> the lockout is still very much in effect. There's really no uh, no action on that end. You have to imagine once the new year begins, there will be some traction there. But we spoke about it for a little bit last week. There's so much at play here, um, not just with regards to money being divided between rightful parties, uh, i.e. read the players. Um, you know, everyone deserves their fair slice, slice of the pie. But just the game itself, nobody wants to – I know that we're kind of retreading this stuff, but nobody wants to see one games get lost, see this – you know, once, once spring training or reporting to spring training gets delayed, if that happens, that is, a, you know, a mark on the game – and it's it's a setback. Any growth that the games had, and again, keep in mind that this is a sport that's lacking in youthful fans. I believe the average age fan is somewhere in in fifties, fifty years old, or something like that. So this is a um, a not a push in the right direction. And of course, there's going to be media narratives. It's uh, it has just such potential to get messy that with a, a, a what's got to be considered a very clear middle ground, just concessions. It's all it's going to take is concessions. Owners are willing to give up a little bit of their bottom line for the people who earn all that money for them, the players. Um, it's it just, I know that there's a business aspect to it, but just the fairness aspect. Yeah, these guys, uh, players get paid a lot of money, but if you were doing their type of work, you'd get paid a lot of money too. If everybody could play baseball, it wouldn't be such a... Uh, a, a, a lucrative job. We, we can't all do this professionally. They do. Um, is it, you know, is it another conversation that baseball players make all this money? Not really. You know, considering the type of money the game brings in, I think it's 13 billion in 2019 or something like that. Um, yeah. I, I, you know, you have owners that are all teetering on the billion dollar range or, or darn close to it. You have some who don't spend like it, but that's n- neither here nor there. I think there's a lot of room for coming together on, on this. This next CBA is going to be important. Last time the players feel like they got screwed and most with knowledge of the subject say they did. And uh, this is going to be a time for them to make it right. We're just going to have to see if that 
comes to fruition in a uh, expeditious manner. Yeah, I have to just hope that it uh, that it does. Like we said, there's a lot at play here. It's more than just losing games and players losing salary. It's uh, it's damaging to the to the game itself. But again, once the new year passes, we should start to see uh, more news trickle out, and hopefully, they come to an agreement sooner rather than later, and uh, finish the off season, start the spring training, and. On to another wonderful 162. But on that note, of course, the Mets, uh, their roster moves are frozen. We talked about the Bucks show Walter hiring. That's great. Uh, next on the list would be filling out the coaching staff. And I know I've made my preference pretty well known. I, I'd love to see Carlos Beltran on the bench. Um, I think he would be just a, a, an extremely opportune position for him to learn from a baseball lifer in Buck. Uh, you know, there's... Certainly unfinished business there. The Mets hired Beltran to be their their manager, and he was – I don't want to say he was scapegoated by, by the league in their uh, investigation into Houston, but, you know, he was – I believe he was in the first paragraph of the report, and, yeah, he's just a player. There were – he doesn't – I'm sure he doesn't know how to set up video equipment, and I'm sure he doesn't have the uh, – he didn't have the the uh, ability to say, oh, guys, let's let's stop this, you know. I feel he was scapegoated, but everyone else is getting their jobs. You know, um, Cora is back. Uh, AJ Hinch is in Detroit. Everyone's kind of settling back into the game. It's only a matter of time before before Beltran does. And this is the type of baseball mind that that what I guess this is what caused them to hire him in the first place was his experience, his knowledge of the game, his grasp on analytics, and ability to kind of convey that to his players and. You know, this is uh, uh, the whole first time manager thing doesn't scare me. And even if it was the case where, you know, he's on Buck's bench or as his bench coach for three years and or, or whatever the case may be, four years. Uh, no, no, there's a three year deal. My apologies. Uh, you know, sit on the bench, learn from one of the best and then step into the role. I mean, we've seen first year managers have success. We've also seen first year managers uh, crash and burn. But, you know, I, I believe that. Carlos Beltran would be a, an excellent choice to kind of groom into that role. And again, learning from Buck and that continuity, they uh, uh, can just that continuous flow between, I know it would be a little different going from one manager to another, but you know, if things work out as planned and Buck plays uh, manages through his contract and say Beltran is the bench coach and, you know, just kind of seamlessly shift. I, again, this is all kind of pie in the sky, but at this point, I, I think the Mets um, are certainly exploring their options. But just from a fan's perspective, I'd love to see a Beltran in there. Get him back in the organization. Um, if the Mets find success, of course, he's going to be a, uh, you know, he, he's going to benefit from that with as far as the, uh, uh, you know, there, there's fans who haven't. <laughs> let's let's make it clear. There's fans who still haven't forgiven Beltran for striking out in 2006, but um, you know some fans are are don't feel like Beltran should be back. And I know that's kind of been whittled down in, in over the last couple of years. Uh, when the news phrase first came out, it was oh he's got to go, he's got to go. And then you know soon after people started coming around like oh yeah, well <laughs> it's kind of a shame that he was uh, all of his blame was placed on one player on one player. And, uh, yeah, yeah. We, we've gone down this road before. I just, I think it would be a very wise, prudent move on the Mets part to, um, 
bring him back into the fold and get him ready for that next position. Hopefully it would be here, but we'll see how that goes. Uh, oh, Pat Rigato. I'm, I have just a little list here. Pat Rigato, my buddy, uh, we used to work together at Metsmerized. Now he's over at Sports Illustrated, absolutely killing it. Pat had a report this week, which was confirming Mike Mayer's report from November that uh, the Mets were indeed getting calls on Jeff McNeil. Um, and now, uh, as per Pat's report, which came out on Christmas Eve, uh, the Mets do indeed intend to explore those possibilities with the hopes of uh, getting starting pitching back. And of course, they've already done so much with their rotation. You have DeGrom, Scherzer, Carrasco, Walker, and even in the five hole, uh, you have, you know, what you assume would be McGill, uh, Tyler McGill, David Peterson, and maybe Trevor Williams competing for that fifth spot, even if maybe they want to go with six spots and those. Um, yeah, it's going to be a, it's going to be a solid rotation to begin with, but if the Mets truly are shopping McNeil with hopes of getting a, a starting, a good starting pitcher like that, I mean, that's a, that's a big time move. That's a, um, that would be a, a, you know, you have to assume the Mets aren't going to flip McNeil for a, a maybe, um, you know, whether you have to package him with a prospect or whatever, they're, they're going to have options. If they really want to bring in a, you know, a mid-level starter comparable to a Carrasco or a Walker and just have DeGrom, Scherzer, and then three number threes behind him, that's that's a pretty amazing rotation. That's a, a feather in the cap, you might say, for Billy Epler stepping in and, and upgrading that. Um you know, where they might go. I know John Heyman from, you know, John's at MLB Network, uh, um, Odyssey, you know, he's on FAN and through the 509, I think it's called, in, in Chicago. Anyway, you guys all know Heyman. Uh, Heyman mentioned the White Sox as a possible suitor, and that makes sense. Um, I believe they are, uh, without a true second baseman at the moment, um, who do they have penciled in there? I'm going to go ahead and pull this up right now. I believe Garcia could probably step in and play second. They they brought him back recently. Uh, Danny Mendick has been up and down. Um, he plays a little a little second base. He's kind of like a utility guy. He's pretty much in the same vein as Jeff McNeil. And even going down a little further, I mean, they have depth, but not really. I mean, Yolbert Sanchez might be there in a, in. You could assume maybe at the end of this year, but you can't really count on it. I mean, the, and the White Sox are going to be a very competitive ball club. I mean, they've got the the pieces there. You have to wonder if the Mets are sending over McNeil, um, what they might be getting in return. It's very tough to imagine that they're parting with Lucas Giolito, <laughs> without a doubt. Uh, Dylan Cease isn't going anywhere. By the way, let me toot my own horn. Check out Southside Sox. I just wrote a piece on Dylan Cease a couple of weeks ago outstanding pitcher, one of the best fastballs in the game. So much, uh, I guess, a lack of vertical drop to it, so it has that rising appearance. Really, really cool pitcher. Anyway, uh, Lance Lynn, of course, probably isn't going anywhere. Dallas Keuchel, I mean, as a number five, sure. Um, he's got the, the pedigree. I mean, he's had a very successful career. He's had his ups and downs. He certainly wasn't great last year. He still gets a lot of ground balls, and the Mets – do have hey, uh, a and uh, a decent infield in place that they would uh, be able to, you know, roll with that. You know, Michael Kopech would certainly be an option, but you have to wonder whether the White Sox are willing to to move him. I believe he's a former 
first rounder with Boston or definitely a high draft pick in Boston uh, years ago. Uh, came to Chicago, had some injury trouble, working his way back. Last year had a very nice year. They used him out of the bullpen, then they started using him as a starter. And you have to assume he's penciled into the rotation in 2022. Yeah, I, I don't <laughs> – he's only got two years of service time, so I don't know if he's going to be um, in in the market or in that kind of ballpark for a McNeil trade. So, you know, it's got to make sense for the Mets. Like I said that at the Apple this week. If the Mets are going to move McNeil, it's, it's got to make sense. And the type of player that he is – I mean, we've talked about this at length. Uh, from his debut in 2018 through 2020 – McNeil led the majors in batting average. His on-base percentage and weighted runs created plus were 11th in the game. 12% strikeout rate was 7th in the game. I mean, that's all very much elite. That's a top-notch player. Defensive versatility, all that. Uh, You know, things went south in more than one way last year for him. Uh, He had a terrible and, of course, uh, injury-shortened or injury-abbreviated season. But... um, Production-wise, it was he, he was not the same player. Uh, many have opined that he's uh, he was playing injured, and of course, there was never any reports to substantiate that. But he certainly wasn't himself. That was noticeable, and and one could assume that something was going on there. But of course, without the uh, proper confirmation, it's just speculation. And then, of course, it was the stuff with Francisco Lindor, who you know that eventually led to punches and chokes and clubhouse battles and uh, rats and raccoons and all that crazy stuff. But, you know, even if that was uh, water under the bridge, you know, Lindor's here for the next decade. That that sort of um, beef just can't be left around and waiting to re-spark at any moment. That's just, uh, it's not good business. It's, you wouldn't have employees at each other's necks uh, in the workplace. That's just a, it's not fair to anybody and it could ruin whatever you have going on. So, it makes sense that the Mets would be shopping McNeil. Uh, coming off his worst statistical year of his career is, you know, risky. Uh, you're certainly limiting yourself as far as the return. But, I mean, look at Michael Conforto. He jumped into free agency. He had the ability to come back to the Mets on the on the qualifying offer. Um, coming off the worst year of his career, and he chose not to. So, clearly, there's going to be teams out there that are valuing McNeil just like they value Conforto. Um, for his track record, not for one really, really bad year. Because, again, leading up to 2021, McNeil was outstanding. Uh, which also lends credence to the idea that you would keep him around. You know, you have depth now. You have major league quality depth uh, all around the infield. You have Cano, who's certainly going to get reps. He's making enough money. Uh, if he's healthy, he's going to be out there. You will have to at least think sporadically. Um whether it's second or if they have a DH there. Uh, Eduardo Escobar can play third. Um, J.D. Davis, if he's still around, can play third. You know, McNeil would be a, a super utility guy. There's there's probably not a true starting position for him. Um, the Mets have corner outfielders now. I mean, there's not a place to really put him, but that level of depth is, is a great thing, especially with that quality of player. Other side of that coin, as we just said, there's uh, there's other issues at play. So you have to kind of take everything and <laughs> make lemonade out of lemons. But, you know, the Mets, they, they're going to have options. There's certainly going to be teams who can 
who can use a player like Jeff McNeil. I mean, just kind of poke around. Look at um. Oh, I talked to our buddy James Mastrucci from uh, This Is Believe Land. He's been on the show a couple of times. We spoke briefly on Monday uh, about the Garden, the Guardians possibly uh, being interested in McNeil and being a fit since the Mets are indeed looking for uh, starting pitching and, the, and Cleveland has a, an absolutely elite uh, starting five. You know, going into the 2022 season right now, the uh, – the Guardians have Andres Jimenez as their uh, penciled in as their starting second baseman. He was, you know, he's still that player. I think we saw the potential of Jimenez um, on full display when I guess that was in 2020. He was getting a lot of reps for the Mets, played very well, exciting young player, really struggled last year, went down to AAA, struggled there for a little while, but then really turned it on. I think you heard me snap my fingers there. Uh, Really, just flipped a switch, and he was back to being that guy. Whether they can count on him, especially with a pitching staff like that, and he still have stars in place. Um, Jose Ramirez is around, Fran Mo Reyes, hitting bombs, Bobby Bradley, another big power guy. Um, Miles Straw coming out of his shell finally. Ahmed Rosario had a very nice season. Still got to get that OPS over 800, but we'll get there, Rosie. you know, having a player like McNeil in there who can move around, who can spell everybody, who can give give guys a – whether it's a, a breath at, at third for uh, for Jose Ramirez, uh, a start at second, giving a day for Ahmed Rosario at short, going to play the corners, whether uh, – I know they got – who they got? Zimmer out there and I can't think of their other corner outfielder. Anyway, you know – McNeil's versatility could play well. And then you look at their their rotation. You have to assume Shane Bieber's not going anywhere. Same thing with Tristan McKenzie. Uh, both absolutely high-end uh, young pitchers. And really, right down the line, Cal Quantrill, son of Paul Quantrill, used to pitch for the Mets. Zach Plesak, uh, Plesak nephew of Dan Plesak, uh, also really, really good pitcher. One of my personal favorites on that staff is Aaron Savale. Aaron Savale, who our buddy at G-E-N-Y, our buddy Grant Papura, uh, pointed out that Savale is a Connecticut native. native. He's from New Windsor. Uh, I have passed that area probably, oh, I don't know, a few hundred times in my life. We got family up in western Massachusetts. So, hey, Uncle Pete. Hey, gang. Um, yeah, you know, if – if things fit, I mean, for a pitcher like Savali, even for Quantrill or, or Plesek, it's going to take more than Jeff McNeil. Um, Jeff McNeil is about to start making arbitration money. <laughs> Cleveland is notoriously uh, not a big spender. So, you know, you have to wonder what would make sense for them. I don't think it will take one of the Mets higher end guys prospects to uh, to make a deal happen for let's uh, I'm going to say Savali because I'm, I'm just a big fan but I don't think that it would take McNeil and a you know a high-end prospect to do that I think it would take less but I think that could be a a really good fit I really do I mean you stick Savali at the back of this rotation and, and boy that's a um that's a force that's just a, an absolute force and then you have Peterson and McGill and Williams, and eventually Lucchese, and, you know, that's all the depth you need. Um, You can start moving on. You move on to the next and just fill out your bullpen, go find a third baseman, or, you know, whether you have to actually replace Jeff McNeil, that's, uh, 
you have the bodies here. We we talked about Escobar. We talked about Cano. Luis Guillorme, still around, still with major league options. He's already proven his worth. He can fill in anywhere. He can hit. He's just as good a contact hitter as Jeff McNeil is. Uh, doesn't strike out. Um, doesn't swing at the first pitch. I guess we all remember Guillorme's, uh, what was that, a 21 pitch at bat in spring training or something like that? I hope that was Guillorme. I think it was. Anyway, um, you know, the, the bodies are here. I think McNeil is expendable. Just it's a matter of, of quality depth. And, and the Mets have quality depth, but McNeil's a hell of a ball player. When he's right, he's a difference maker. So, again, the trade really has to has to make sense. And, I mean, you could even poke around Baltimore. Baltimore, I think, is in under uh, underappreciated potential landing spot for him. I mean, I believe right now they have Ruvnet Odor as their starting second baseman. Yes, they do. Odor is penciled in as their starting second baseman. It's already been reported that John Means is going to be on the trading block. Of course, it's going to take uh, <laughs> it's going to take quite a bit to get uh, John Means out of Baltimore. Um, he's still got option years left. He's also entering arbitration, I believe. This is, will be his first arbitration year as well. But still, pitching is valued so much higher than hitting, especially a utility hitter, <laughs> um, as well as a contact hitter as McNeil might be. John Means, is a, um, he's a frontline starting pitcher, and that that might take a uh, quite a return coming back, whether you want to toss in a, uh, you know, I love to say, let's stay away from the top three. And I, I think you have to assume that Alvarez is off the board and everything. Um, Brett Beatty and Ronnie Mauricio. I do have them 2A and 2B. I really do. I know some people are willing to to bite the bullet on Mauricio. I am not. <laughs> he's, he's my pick for, um, you know, I know he's not the most you can't call him the highest rated prospect in the Mets system. However, you can. I, I'm more than willing to say he's going to have the highest ceiling as a major leaguer. Uh, his skills are just otherworldly. I, I can't wait to see him uh, do his thing. Hopefully it's here. <laughs> I don't hug many prospects, but boy, that's my, uh, that's my guy. But you have to wonder what Baltimore would be expecting back in the deal for means. Um, it's going to be a haul. And whether it's McNeil, maybe you can, maybe you can package McNeil and Davis. Maybe you package McNeil and Dom, and then fill it out with a prospect or three. <laughs> but John Means, I mean, that would be another just incredible addition, making this rotation, if it's not already the best in baseball, you know, undoubtedly the best in the game. And you know, I I, I can always picture McNeil in San Francisco. Uh, that versatility would play. The contact in that funky outfield would play. Um, you, you just picture him sending <laughs> sending doubles and triples into the gap and those funky angles out there. Uh, you know, what would come back in a deal like that? Who, who knows? I know San Francisco doesn't have many starting pitchers to begin with. So, you know, uh, possibly Oakland. I know Oakland's been uh, mentioned as a possible destination point for a lot of different things. We talked about them in... I believe that was October. Matt Chapman. Um, we had an article on Matt Chapman in, at the Apple. You know, it's going to take a, a haul and a half to get him. But if you're packaging McNeil and Davis and prospects, you can make it work. Um, 
of course, if you're taking back Chapman and a starting pitcher, maybe like a Sean Maniah or something, you know, that's going to be a little bit tougher. But I think it's doable. I think the Mets have the front office in place to kind of not only find the best deal and target what they want back or who they want back, like specifically, but find the deal that works. I think that uh, with a new regime, I, I don't want to say that they don't care about the incumbent prospects, but there's no, I don't want to say sentimental attachment, but there's no like, oh, I drafted this guy. I have to worry about him doing well here. No, this is a, I mean, I know the guys who drafted this system are all still in place, but I would assume, and of course this is just conjecture, but you would have to assume that uh, with a new page being turned organizationally, maybe that's just kind of, all right, guys, we are not afraid to, to, to explore any options at this point. Maybe you do see one of the higher end guys move. I doubt it, but it's possible. You know, honestly, after what we've seen so far this off season, I wouldn't put anything past this front office as far as making this team better. And it's, a <coughs> excuse me. It's a, it really is a, uh, a pickle trying to figure out if this team is better with Jeff McNeil roaming around utility bench, whatever, or flipping him over for another starting pitcher. I mean, the pitching is strong, but you can never have too much of it. So yeah, it's, uh, it's really, it's, it's quite the, uh, quite the tough decision to make. We got to take a really quick break. I'm a little late on that, but, uh, hang tight. We're going to hear from our sponsors. I'll be right back and wrap it up. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right. Well, this was fun. I didn't expect to get a solid 20 minutes or so out of Jeff McNeil, but look at us. Look what we did. Um, real quick, we're going to wrap up with some Hall of Fame stuff. We're going to be getting into the Hall of Fame stuff at, at length over the next few weeks, so look out for that. But um, our good friends over at the uh, the Hall of Fame trackers, Ryan Thibodeau, uh, of course, my friend Anthony Kalanis, uh and, you know, these guys do fantastic work. They now they're, you know, compared to years ago, there was, uh, you know, they were searching for ballots. And now all the national baseball writers send their uh, send their ballots to these guys. So we're able to kind of keep track of what's where everything is at. Of course, a candidate needs 75 percent minimum uh, for election. Um, so with looks like Ryan Thibodeau tweeted out. On Tuesday afternoon, seventy-nine ballots have been revealed. It's around twenty percent of the uh, of the total. As of right now, only three players are above that seventy-five percent mark: David Ortiz, eighty-two point three percent; Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens, both at seventy-eight point five percent. Traditionally, these numbers drop as more ballots are counted. So uh, I think it's more than conceivable to assume that Bonds and Clemens don't get in in their final year. Although, you never know. I do think that it's a Hall of Fame. It's not a 
judged, uh, judging solely on their playing careers and their the gap between their talent and the average ball player of their time, whether it's a, an outfielder in Bond's case or a starting pitcher in Clemens' case, I, I mean, I lived through their primes. I lived through most of their careers. I watched pretty much their entire careers. I've never seen anything like Barry Bonds in my life before steroids, during steroids. I mean, if he was a product of steroids or performance-enhancing drugs and that, you know, PEDs could do for everyone else what they did for Bonds, then everyone would have been hitting 70-something home runs. Bonds was hitting 70 home runs. Bonds was just incredible. There's nothing like him, best baseball player I've ever seen in my life. It Was he, a, you know, a piece of shit? Possibly. I'm not saying, you know, he, he was a jerk to reporters. He did some very, very um, disappointing stuff um, over the years. You could do your research on that. Not everyone in the Hall of Fame is a good person. Quite frankly, you know, I would say a large portion of them are not great people. But, you know, we're not celebrating community leaders. We're celebrating athletes. Um, athletes are flawed just like people are flawed. Everybody has flaws. There's no reason to, uh, I guess, play the uh, the moral card when, you know, you don't throw stones. Leave it at that. Anyway, um, when it comes to Bonds and Clemens, I mean, Clemens was, <laughs> you could tell, I think we've said it here on the show before, you could tell that, you know, when he came into Toronto in spring training in 1997, he looked like a professional wrestler. I mean, he was all jacked up. He had the goatee. I think one day he wore a bandana. I mean, he was looking the part of just, you know, Jim Rat Juicehead. And, you know, it, it is what it is. It was a sign of the times in baseball. But he was cooked. For the two years before that, he was cooked. He was dealing with injuries. He had a great run. If You you could probably put him in just based on his Boston run. You really could. But um, what followed was clearly a, a product of the PEDs. Same goes for Bonds. I mean, 400-400 before he started using PEDs. 400 home runs, 400 stolen bases. No one's ever done it before. No one's done it since. It's Barry Bonds, and that's it. That's the list. Barry Bonds. That's um, that's incredible. And that, you know, that deserves to be, that deserves enshrinement. I don't care if the guy used steroids. Everyone was using steroids. You can't pick and choose just because the guy was an asshole of media. You can't pick and choose because the guy, you know, reportedly did some stupid shit when he was younger. I mean, it's not a, again, it's not a perfect world. And I know that there's a, a morality clause and all that stuff in the, in the hall of fame and you have to be a good person. And it's a fucking museum. He's one of the best baseball players in history. I don't think letting anybody in is excusing their behavior. I mean, there's things, there's lines that were crossed, whether it was Bonds, whether it was Omar Vizquel, lines were crossed, and those lines will determine how the public perceives you. And in Vizquel's case, I, mean, I don't even think he was a Hall of Famer to begin with. He has the counting stats because he had a 20-something year career. He was a fantastic fielder for most of his career, but he's a fringe Hall of Famer. And then added the you know, horrific stuff that he's being accused of. Yeah, you know, he's, that's why he's coming in at 10%. But, uh, you know, there's, with Bonds, at least the PEDs, I can't speak on the other stuff. Um, it, it's, it, it was an era in the game, just like there was a dead ball era, there was a steroid era. It doesn't, it is what it is. Either way, 
there was more to that Hall of Fame part. I kind of got hung up on Bonds and Clemens. But Scott Rowland, also, from my point of view, a Hall of Famer, um, just one of the most talented all-around third baseman I've ever seen. He's coming in at 72.2%, so this might not be his year. Kurt Schilling, who requested he not be voted, is coming in at 70.9%. And I, you know, I've made it a point this year not to knock people for their bad ballots, including someone who doesn't want to freaking be in there. That's a bad ballot. He doesn't want to be there. Leave him off. You're wasting a vote. Um, Todd Helton and Billy Wagner, who, you know, if you've read at the Apple, I'm a big proponent of Billy Wagner being, uh, of course, outside of Mariano Rivera, the best closer of his generation, better than head and shoulders, better than Trevor Hoffman. And I'm sorry, Trevor Hoffman. He had a Hall of Fame career, no doubt. Billy Wagner's ERA was uh, a half a rung lower than yours. And he believed he was only like three F war behind you. And you had almost two seasons more than him. So in any case, Billy Wagner is at 51.9%. I believe he will get there. Um, again, if you look at the body of work and if you look at the comparison of back-end relievers who are in the Hall of Fame. You know, Wagner's one of the best. If not, like I said, outside of uh, Rivera, who's no one compares with him, Wagner was the best of his generation. He's got to be in there. Anyway, Todd Helton, I don't care if he played at Coors. When you watch Todd Helton play, you knew you were watching a Hall of Famer. Uh, me and John Sapinaro had that conversation. If you haven't listened to that episode, I think we are – Two back, one, episode 141. We're at 143 now, my goodness. But uh, I think Todd Helton, he's he's a Hall of Famer. He will get there, 58.2%. Andrew Jones, who I've grown on in recent years. The defense is unquestionable, elite, one of the best I've ever seen play center field. Um, the offense was almost, he's almost like a Jim Edmonds, who in my eyes wasn't a Hall of Famer, but certainly a borderline guy. And I think that's kind of where... Andrew Jones lands. Uh, he's at 50.6%, so it's more than conceivable he gets there. After Gil Hodges finally got in this year, any player who's ever gotten over 50% in a single voting year was eventually elected to Cooperstown. Of course, these aren't final numbers, but uh, with 20% in, you have a good idea where these guys are trending. And I think there's certainly a, a case for Andrew Jones. I just wouldn't bet on it. Um, then you have your Alex Rodriguez at 49.4%. A-Rod was terrific, but uh, I think getting busted for, for PEDs you know, almost a half decade after uh, after that balloon kind of exploded, that, that hurt him big time and failed twice, if I remember correctly, at least a failed test and then biogenesis or something like that. Uh, Gary Sheffield, 500 home runs. Whether it was steroids or not, you can't really argue with that. He was a terrific hitter. Fastest bat I've ever seen. And that's probably still valid, still a valid observation. Uh, I can remember him coming in with the Yankees during a Subway Series game. We were sitting down the third base line. And, of course, this was before Nets. And, uh, boy, when Sheffield was up, everybody perked up and everybody had to turn to the plate because you didn't know what was coming down the end, coming down the – down the third base line, man, he would send 110 mile an hour exit velocity literally into the front three rows. It was uh, terrifying, <laughs> absolutely terrifying. And, you know, fans are giving him, oh, you know what, should we wear a helmet, stuff like that? It was fun. You know, I guess Shea was uh, 
good times like that. It was it was almost like those first three, those first couple of rows after the dugout. I guess that first few feet after the dugout, the foul line and the and the wall. It felt like it was right there. Anyway, um, yeah, Gary Sheffield. He's at forty five point six. Manny Ramirez, who one of the best hitters I've ever seen, unfortunately falls into the same category as uh, as Gary Sheffield. Where get, I mean, I'm sorry, as uh, Alex Rodriguez, where you know you get busted for PEDs so so long after testing began. That's a, um that's a killer. I know you know in Manny's case, he probably just wanted to keep the uh, <laughs> keep the career going at that point, but you know. It was a uh, it was a, a blow to his legacy. Um, without those busts, Manny's a, a first first ballot Hall of Famer, one of the greatest hitters I've ever seen. Whether it was just hitting singles, whether it was hitting home runs, it just outstanding, outstanding. Just from Cleveland all the way through, just what a what a ball player. Uh, he's at forty three, and then you have like Kent twenty four point one. That's a tricky one. I don't think he gets in, but. You know, before Robinson Cano came along, Kent was the offensive second baseman. He was the uh, the benchmark in, in Major League history. He was one of the best. And uh, you got to wonder, if he doesn't get in on the ballot, whether the committee era, uh, the era committee, kind of shines a different light down the road. Then you have Sammy Sosa, who I've said it here in the past. Uh, <laughs> without the PEDs, Sammy Sosa was not a great ball player. Um, you know, you could tell when he started using, um, and it just, you know, he was great while he was using outstanding, exciting. Um, that little hop and skip after he hit very, very long home runs, but it was all, he was one of those guys that you could tell what you were watching. You could tell it was a, it was smoke and mirrors, you know, and in my opinion, same thing with McGuire. McGuire wasn't a hall of fame player. He hit a lot of home runs. He gave him steroids and he hit even more, but he wasn't some fantastic ball player. Uh, again, other power hitters have gotten in. So maybe McGuire gets in through the Eric committee, but with all the Congress and the PEDs, I, I just, I doubt it. And I don't think Sosa ever gets there either. And, uh, and the voting's trending that way. He's at 21.5%. Um, Andy Pettit's at 12.7. We talked about this scale. Bobby Abreu, He's with Andy Pettit at 12.7%. And that's a shame. That is a um, that's a damn shame. Hell of a player. Probably won't get in. Doesn't have the hardware. Doesn't have the counting stats. But, boy, analytics have shined just an unbelievable light on Bobby Abreu's, Abreu's career. And we talked about it a couple of shows ago. Even his slash line. Um, you know, you look at a guy's prime, and that's supposed to be like seven years. You could take like an 11, 12-year period of Bobby Abreu's career and he's a, you know, an above, above, above average player. Just a shame he never kind of got that recognition. But um, yeah, the Hall of Fame season, man. We we love it here. Um, I think I'm going to be doing something at the Apple over the next few weeks, at least shining a light on some of these guys. Uh, taking a look into the stats and stuff like that, but we'll get there. Otherwise, uh, I think that's all we got for this week. It's very strange time of year. It's the dead of winter now. It's uh, <laughs> nothing going on because of the lockout. Just very, very strange. So on that note, I guess we'll uh, we'll just see you guys next time. And uh, you know the sign-off, of course. Let's fucking go Mets. And yeah, we'll see you then, guys. Peace. Peace.
Oh, 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 oh,